Welcome in, everybody. Thank you for joining us. We're doing something a little bit different and new today, but hopefully it'll be a segment that's here to stay. We're going to call it Terry's Takes. For those of you that follow us on our social media platforms, you've probably noticed that once a week, Terry Roberts, our director of appellate practice, has been kind enough to grace everyone out there with a summary and his perspective on some of the pertinent appellate decisions out of state, excuse me, uh, appellate courts out of Florida, state and federal alike. So that includes the 11th Circuit, the Florida Supreme Court, and the 1st through 5th District Courts of Appeal. Um, what we'd like to do now moving forward is do a monthly recap of basically the top four or five cases, topping those of most interest um, to our audience and give Terry an opportunity to maybe expound on them a little bit further. So without further ado, let's kind of roll off this top five. Terry, starting with Robinson versus Sauls. This is a federal case, right? It went up to the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. The majority opinion was written by Judge Jill Pryor. Um, and this dealt with an excessive force claim with some shooting. So why don't you catch us up to speed? Right. So this this is a Bivens claim. And the, the, the main difference between that and a 1983 claim is that 1983 claims are are more aimed at state and local officials. Bivens is uh, is a court created cause of action against uh, federal authorities. And this was a, a joint task force of, of federal marshals and various kinds of law enforcement. But essentially, there was, um, I guess, Mr. Robinson had some sort of mental health crisis where he was acting erratically, tried to set his mother's house on fire. Uh, police had tried to track him down a few times, and they they became aware that he was at his girlfriend's house. And uh, essentially, a whole armed task force came to knock, and if he didn't surrender, then uh, you know things were going to get bad. Mr. Robinson appeared at the uh, on a second floor with a, a, uh, a pistol and pointed it at the officers, didn't fire it at that point, and uh, everyone opened fire. There were, there were uh, about 100 shots fired back at him uh, when he was killed during this altercation, spoilers, but uh, there were like 43 bullet, bullets and fragments found in his body. So it was, it was a, a hail. But apparently he had come back and forth. He was shot. He was visibly wounded, but kept coming back and forth um and and he was wounded but still carrying the gun according to the officers the the big takeaway from this is that when he when he eventually falls down his his mother is the person who brought the suit uh on and and her her main thought behind the suit was that essentially they'd acted as an execution squad uh closing in on him and firing when he had lost the ability to even uh hold a gun his fingers were injured uh, due to gunshot fire uh so basically it was you know an execution squad and in her view she had called witnesses and what the 11th circuit did is the district court had essentially ruled for law enforcement on all grounds found qualified immunity uh across the board and how to get around a, uh, or challenge qualified immunity is that the first step is for the officers to show that they were acting within the scope of of their authority, their discretionary authority, which clearly here they were trying to apprehend someone who was uh, dangerous and that wasn't um, up for debate here. Uh, but then the burden shifted to the mother to demonstrate that a constitutional right was violated and that the right was clearly established at the time of the alleged violation. And these are pretty common in Bivens and 1983 cases, not plowing a lot of new ground here. The main point in this was that once Mr. Robinson had fallen down, they used what's called a flashbang grenade, which is what it sounds like. It makes light, it makes a large sound, 
and they threw this in to see if he would respond and he didn't move so he was either dead or unconscious at that point and all the law enforcement officers said at that point they just sort of came in and took control of the scene and they had stopped shooting but a neighbor had been videotaping and while the neighbor's outside not inside so you don't see exactly what's unfolding inside you can hear the flashbang clearly and you see an officer outside jump and react to it and uh and then you hear the sound of law enforcement firing and they could tell from the specific kind of weapon that was being fired there were shots fired after the flashbang and that everyone agreed that he didn't move in response so so am I, am I correct in assuming, I mean, I've read the opinion once, I'm sure you've read it more. Am I correct in assuming that from a legal standpoint, an issue for the appellate court to decide was the defendant law enforcement officer's position that, hey, look, there's no prior case law that says we can't do this. And therefore, because there's no prior case, we weren't on notice that this would have violated his rights had we acted like this, so on and so forth. And then you were talking about the obvious clarity exception. And I think that's what makes this case unique. I don't even recall the last time I read a case where it was applied. I've read that it theoretically could apply, but I've actually not seen a court of appeals apply it. So maybe you could kind of expound on that. Yeah, well, that that's that's the point here is that this is so far beyond the what they call the hazy border between excessive and acceptable force that the officers had to know they were violating the Constitution, even without a specific bit of case law in point. Although then they do talk about a 2016 case regarding uh, uh, a violation of law, violation of Fourth Amendment rights, where, and that's what we're talking about here is Fourth Amendment search and seizures, these excessive force cases fall under constitutional violations of Fourth and Fourteenth Amendment rights. Or, or uh, So if in that case, the 2016 case, they shot someone who is incapacitated at the time. So basically Robinson is a great case to say, if especially if there's shooting, but you could try and rely on it if there was, you know, less lethal force, but excessive force uh, where someone is incapacitated. In this case, he was unconscious, but presumably if someone was uh, already restrained or handcuffed or just simply so hurt that they can't fight back and the officers then use force, uh, you could cite Robinson both for the uh, for following clearly established law but also for this obvious clarity rule where it's basically it's it's a no brainer. You can't shoot a guy who's unconscious in the name of trying to arrest him. That's that's what it comes down to. I think I think it's it might be obvious to the layperson or even the average practitioner who doesn't handle these cases to say uh, firing 100 shots back at a suspect, including firing shots after he or she has been disarmed or is unresponsive, uh, seems obviously like you would be violating their rights. But the reality is no matter how obvious it may seem from a common sense standpoint, these defendant officers are often invoking this doctrine to say, show me a case. Cause if you can't show me a prior case with dead on facts that was decided by the 11th circuit court of appeals, or maybe the highest court of resort in Florida, the Florida Supreme court, then there is no prior precedent. If there's no prior precedent, we weren't on notice. That's a defense. And it becomes a catch 22 and sort of the circular thing of, we can't hold in your favor because we haven't held in your favor in a similar case before. And yeah. so, sorry, uh, you might be right, but if there's no clearly established case, then we also have to follow that and, and reject the view. The, the other troubling thing about it and the thing that caught my eye and kind of elevated it above some other cases to, to uh, you know, use it for the, for the monthly summary is that 
you know, at every step of the way in summary judgment, what the officers said really ruled the day because you need a genuine issue of material fact and no one was in the house except Mr. Robinson uh, or, or any officers. And if there had not been this neighbor's video showing the timing of the flashbang grenade and then the subsequent shooting, which contradicted what the officers said, they said, after that, we stopped everything. We just secured the scene. We came up and checked on him, but no one shot him after that point. Without the video, there's nothing. You've got, you've got nothing. I mean, the mother had tried to call medical experts to talk about the probable position that he was sitting in. And essentially it came down to, he couldn't have been holding a gun at the end points because his hand was so damaged, but they said, well, we're going to accept what the officers say that he could have been sitting up with the gun, not standing and pointing from a shooting position. And so there's no genuine issue of material fact. It only comes down to the video showing that shooting happened after the flashbang detonates that creates it's, it's sad because it's, it barely makes it across the threshold of genuine issue of material fact when in fact, what it shows is the officers were not truthful. And this is an attack on law enforcement as a whole or anything like that. In this case, to survive summary judgment, the plaintiff had to show essentially that the officers were, were lying and that they did shoot after the grenade and, went off. And for the people out there who have handled cases like this or maybe think that one day they might handle a case like this, pro bono or otherwise, this is the point. Be mindful of that. Nowadays, body-worn cameras are, if not ubiquitous, darn near close to it. Uh, so make sure you're sending out preservation letters. Get a copy of those body-worn cameras. And those apparently weren't used by this task force at all, which is why the neighbor's video becomes, you know, really rules the day. It was the only thing to push back against what the officers said. And, and there's not a lot of dwelling on the fact that the video is objectively showing that they're not truthful. In other words, everything they said that wasn't contradicted by the video was still deemed by the court to have no genuine issue of material fact on the other side. Their word was accepted right up until the point for everything except things that were objectively shown as not truthful by the uh, video. Whereas you can imagine some other court might have said, now that these officers have been shown that they are lying about some of the circumstances of the shooting that a reasonable jury could find that they were lying about something else but no we're, we're drawing the line at what the neighbor's video could could prove but yeah, i want to let me just say two final points and then we can move on to the next one uh one being about the the use of video and two being the obvious clarity rule in my personal or rather my professional experience handling cases for this firm we've had cases where it either predated the technology of body-worn cameras or they weren't being used by that force, uh, police department. But we actually had a case that went to the 11th Circuit and they affirmed in our favor because the trial court had denied the defendant's summary judgment motion because a neighbor had video surveillance affixed to their property. And that caught the use of force in what amounted to like a dead end cul-de-sac. But for that neighbor's video, we get summary judgment. The district court talked about it. The appellate court on appeal talked about it. So it's, it's critically important. The other point is this obvious clarity exception is definitely an exception and a narrow one at that. But I, to Terry's point, I think, you know, practitioners out there on the plaintiff side should be trying to invoke it a bit more regularly than we do. I, for one, have had at least two cases where from a common sense standpoint, it's like, what? It's obvious. Like, for example, I had someone who passed out three separate times. You call it syncope from probably excessive heat being in a prison uh, in the middle of Florida in the middle of the summer 
three separate occasions and, and medical per personnel knew about each one and never got him to a doctor. And they said, show me a case, which is just so offensive and repugnant, but that's the law. So that's what you need to focus on. But all right, let's shift gears and, and come on back down to Florida State Court and talk about the decision from the Third District Court of Appeal, which governs predominantly Miami-Dade and the Keys, um, written by Chief Judge Emis, or at least recently Chief Judge Emis. And this is talking about the new summary judgment standards. So for those practitioners in state courts in Florida, you now know or have known for a few months that the state standard for summary judgment mirrors or is intended to mirror that of its federal counterpart, Rule 56 under the federal rules, Rule 1.5 unknown to the state rules. So, Terry, tell us what the takeaway is here in Cardenas versus White Pine Insurance. Sure. Well, the interesting thing about this, and this is a shorter case and thankfully a little bit lighter than the previous one. It's not life and death, but uh, but this is a way in which our state rule differs from the federal standard. Uh, in the federal court, if a court wants to uh, grant summary judgment, it can put out basically a summary order, uh, granted denied, whatever. Uh, in in Rule 1.510, the difference in our rule is that it says that the court shall state on the record its reasons for granting or denying summary judgment. And basically, how much do they have to say? Well, that's, that's what this Cardenas case uh, gets into a little bit. Just briefly, the facts of this were a hurricane claim. Uh, the plaintiff is saying that uh, Hurricane Irma blew so hard that it cracked the wall allowing water to get in. The insurance company, White Pine Insurance Company, calls an engineer expert saying that, no, that a lot of this is pre-existing. It's, it's not hurricane-related. We're denying the claim. That's all you really need to know about that. So it appears that the trial judge uh, sides with the insurance company because they called a qualified engineer, whereas the plaintiff called a, a gentleman with four decades of roofing experience but he wasn't credentialed as a qualified engineer. And so this is what the trial court says in the order uh, that, that the non-engineer roofer's affidavit was, quote, insufficient to create a genuine issue of material fact as to whether the force of wind from Hurricane Irma created an opening in the roof of the exterior of the property that allowed water to enter the interior. It's a little bit more than a summary. It's a little bit more than granted or denied. And it, it does talk about some of the, the basis for the judge's decision. Not sufficient. The DCA, the third DCA says, you've got to give us more. This is basically the same as no explanation at all. It's not sufficient for us to conduct our review about what you did here. For specifically, I guess they wanted more about, I'm not going to listen to a non-engineer here and here's why and give them something that they can sink their teeth into uh, on appeal. They find that's that the, it's insufficient. That's the takeaway for me. It. That's the takeaway for me is that I, I read that opinion as it's an appellate court asking trial courts to do them a favor. Like, hey, if right. you realistically expect us to affirm on the merits, then we need to know exactly why you ruled the way you did. And as the practitioner, you know, from our side, I remember when the rule amendment was on the table. I remember when it passed, went into effect. First couple of motions we either filed or had to respond to. There was some chatter and it was pretty much understood that a trial court was going to have to do more than say granted or denied. But here's a really good I don't know if it's the first, but it's the first that I can recall example of a, of a district court saying, no, we need even more than just a brief explanation. And it makes sense. And then for those of you who have practiced in federal court, although rule 56 to Terry's point does not explicitly require the explanation, the common practice by every uh, federal magistrate judge with their R&Rs and district courts with their orders are to give you a full explanation why. 
And so they're already doing that in federal court. And it's far more than a sentence or even a paragraph. Almost always it's eight to 10 pages. And so the point is, is there a page limit or length in state court? No. But the judges need to start explaining, well, how are they going to do that? They're going to rely on the practitioners before them. Let's be realistic. State court judges don't have the resources that federal courts do. State and federal judges don't even have enough resources to do the job we need them to do. So what's going to happen? You're going to go to a hearing. And if you win, hopefully, the judge is probably going to look to your side and say, can you take the initiative of drafting the order? Well, do the judge a favor by not teeing them up for an auto reversal by giving them some really short, brief explanation. Yeah, you know, don't be afraid to hide. He's not going to do it. And, you know, you want to steer away from conclusory statements, <clears throat> you know, um, and and for on the on the other side of things, if you're if you're representing someone and you get a summary judgment, you don't order, you know, an order that you don't like and it's in this one paragraph sort of conclusory statements you win because their experts said you know you might want to consider taking it up not just on the merits but on the fact that the court didn't tell you enough and you can just win based on that now this is going to go back down and the judge is going to have a chance to do a longer opinion and ultimately it may be a big waste of time because the next order might be three pages long it might explain exactly what the judge was thinking but well, that's why least- to me, like when you made that comment, actually, I was going to move on. But just as a parting thought, if if the defense, I'm a plaintiff's lawyer. So if the defense, the other side prevails or the court, even if they don't, but the court asks them to draft an order, if I get that order and I see that on its face, it's not likely to survive scrutiny just from a brevity standpoint or not being uh, explanatory enough. I'm probably going to bring that to the other side's attention and not just like keep an ace up my sleeve because to Terry's point, you're not, it's not a win on the merits. If you go up on appeal, it's just going to be a remand, go back and do it the way it should have been. So you're going to end up wasting probably nine months of your life, nine months of the court's life. And I have to imagine that the DCAs will start losing patience. So um, I don't know, just something to be mindful of, but definitely a unique case and good one to, to be aware of. All right, let's stay in the same court, the third district court of appeal but with a different opinion written by a different panel. This one, I think, was written by um, Judge Gordo. This is the Impulsora sustainable case versus Garcia. And this one is talking about a different rule of civil procedure in Florida, which is 1.190, dealing with the amendment to pleading. So, Terry, what's going on in this case? Sure. Well, this this one's just a, a, uh, something short to keep in mind, is that we talk about the fact that if you uh, a lot of times are getting a complaint dismissed, that you're looking to get it dismissed without prejudice, so especially plaintiff's lawyers, you, you're looking for a chance to basically fix what's wrong and refile. And this decision basically stands for a three strikes and you're out probably rule. They don't, they don't set it down as a bright line rule, but basically they say, all right, court dismisses your complaint. Uh, you have to t- look at this, the following three part test. Unless the amendment would prejudice the opposing party, uh, or if the privilege to amend has been amused, uh, abused, or the amendment would be futile, the court has to make the dismissal without prejudice. But every time you go through this process, each time the this rule about you get to fix your mistakes and refile starts to wear thin. And in this case, there had been two dismissals and they say, you're gonna get a third shot here. But basically they announced that Three times is probably enough. If they come back a third time, if it gets dismissed again and the court does it with prejudice this time, we're probably going to say that's fine. Three strikes and you're out. Right. And these things are being reviewed for an abuse of discretion. So the further, the more times you ask the court to exercise its discretion in your favor, the less likely it is it'll get reversed when the court, the trial court finally decides not to. 
because the appellate court will say they already gave you two or three cracks at it. And I've actually had this come up in state and federal court. This is a state opinion in Florida. But the point is this, I think, the takeaway for me. Uh, some people out there might have a tendency to just go back, harken back to what, where's that complaint I filed three years ago where we alleged this or give me some boilerplate. Does anybody have some generic complaint I could put together? I think take your time. That's the lesson I've learned. Take your time, do your best from day one, try and reserve the amendment request for circumstances where you need to add a new defendant or cause of action that you really could not have anticipated. Let's say there's newly discovered evidence through the discovery process that's already ongoing, that will give the court something to sink its teeth into and to say this is not just you abusing the process because you're being lazy or whatever. So, again, to Terry's point, it's not necessarily three strikes and you're out, but I think everyone should act as if because I think the writing's on the wall and just be mindful of that. And if you're if you're stuck in a hearing and, and it's a motion to dismiss and the judge is saying, you know, I've given you a couple chances, we're going to dismiss this with prejudice, and it's it's been – Two chances, you know, just have back in, in the back of your mind somewhere. Uh, judge, I, I think there's at least a three strikes rule. So you've you got to give me a chance to uh, amend one more time, which is exactly what happened here. All right, let's move on. Another third district case. Um, these are we're just picking them. You know, Terry's really isolating the ones that are of interest. So it just so happens that three in a row are from the third district. But this one's White versus AutoZone Investments. So this is a case you had briefed or summarized back in June. It's an employment discrimination, sexual orientation type of lawsuit. The substantive issue was whether a particular code or ordinance in Miami-Dade County created a private cause of action. I'll let you expound on that. We don't practice this area of law particularly sure. often. Sure, this so. is just for our, our, you know, the listeners that practice in Miami-Dade because this is about a Miami-Dade county code provision. So if you're outside Miami-Dade, you know, you got to look and see if you have the same sort of code provision here. But just to be aware that for plaintiff's lawyers in particular, there's basically a new cause of action in your in your in your town so uh the code was amended in 2006 but the the reason that the dca put out a um a a new opinion here uh and, and clarified what it did before is that the defendant was saying uh look you've said numerous times or you've pca'd uh and you've said the code doesn't create a private cause of action for sexual orientation discrimination and so they wanted to address that point by point and say you're right we did say that but the code was amended in 2006 and now there is there's a specific code uh section to sue it's similar to the federal process you have to go through the miami-dade commission on human rights first and get a notice of right to sue from the commission and you have 90 days after they issue that letter to sue. So there, there's pre-suit requirements. You can't just walk down to the courthouse and file. But basically, it's just be unnoticed. If someone comes in and says, I was fired because I was gay or trans or what have you, you can't tell them, sorry, I can't help you anymore. Um, you know, if you're looking to, to take these kind of cases, you've got a cause of action in Miami-Dade now, and uh, you can go forward. All right, so let's move forward to the fifth and final case for today or this September 2022 overview. We're going a little further north, a little further west to the Second District Court of Appeal, still in Florida. This one is a very interesting case to me in particular. And for anybody out there who is practicing or wants to practice medical malpractice cases, you know, either from personal experience or you've heard horror stories or maybe even read other cases about Chapter 766 and its conditions precedent to bringing these causes of action. There's a pre-suit process. There's a requirement to get affidavits or declarations. And that's what Terry's going to talk about from experts, whether what specialty they have to be in and so on. These things can kill your case from day one. 
and make it so that you never have a case to bring if you don't comply with the rules. And here, I think my takeaway is we see a court using reason, common sense, and fairness to interpret the rules and not be so stoic and just say, you didn't comply in some technical sense, therefore no justice. So Terry, tell us what's going on in Martinez versus Ortiz. Right. And, you know, this this one's a really resounding plaintiff's win. Um, and it's got a couple, two, two different points that it's imp- really important for plaintiff's attorneys to know about. Um, so basically this, this dealt with an eye issue. Someone had had surgery, nasal surgery to remove nasal polyps, but then her eye starts swelling. She goes to the doctor. The doctor basically poo-poos it, and and or at least these are the allegations. We're still at the allegation stage, and says, you know, you you don't need a lot of intervention. Misdiagnoses the condition. That's the allegation anyway, and prescribes inadequate treatment. And then there's permanent eye damage. So uh, she gets a, a lawyer. Miss Martinez gets a lawyer, and she sues. Now the the first, uh, as Jordan's talking about the pre-suit notice, you're supposed to attach sworn written medical corroboration of your claim at the pre-suit stage not even at the suit stage and she didn't she sends this notice to sue and what's really important about uh the decision here is they say that's okay which a lot of courts are going to say that's not okay because the she statute, supplemented later right if i read the case right she, she the notice goes it, out and the only thing it's missing so to speak is this corroboration a key thing of course but that's right she goes and finds a doctor dr harry hamburger uh, a medical doctor and she she sends that in later and it's it's before the statute of limitations that's the key you've got um the statute of limitations and you've got to get that in there before the statute of limitations but the statute says specifically expressly and maybe a different dca is going to view this differently that you must attach these to the pre-suit notice, and they say, uh, that's fine. Uh, this this is a great case to suit where uh, to, to cite, where they say the chapter 766 conditions precedent to a malpractice suit were not intended to deny access to the courts on the basis of technicalities. You don't find too many cases, especially these days in Florida, that basically give courts cover when you say, sure, it told me to do this, but what's the harm here, judge? I sent the corroborating uh, doctor's uh, notice to them before filing suit, before the statute of limitations. The fact that it wasn't stapled to the pre-suit notice, who cares? And the DCA says, fine. And these are the kind of things that trial courts say, hey, the statute says you have to attach this. You didn't. I'm dismissing your claim. This one says, forget it. This was fine. The other problem is Dr. Hamburger is a board certified ophthalmologist like the doctor that that uh, that they're trying to sue in this case, but he's also a neuro ophthalmologist, and so basically this court says uh, the defendant says they're not the same specialty, and and the the legislature changed in 2013 they tightened up the language requiring that you find a doctor not just of similar specialty. So for our old timers who've been practicing for a while and. Sometimes these changes take a while to filter down. Similar specialty won't cut it. It's got to be the same specialty. And the defense here says, hey, look, he's an ophthalmologist and a neuro-ophthalmologist, so he's not the same specialty. The DCA sees right through this and says, look, this is a double specialty, but he's an ophthalmologist. And you're suing an ophthalmologist. That's same enough for us. The fact that he's got a double specialty or something additional doesn't mean he's also not an ophthalmologist. It's the same specialty. 
that's fine. And you've satisfied the pre-suit uh, notices. So I actually pulled up the opinion because I feel like, I mean, this is a monumental decision for the plaintiff's lawyers who practice medical. Uh, right. I mean, I think this one's going to be cited 20, 30, 40 times in the next few years. Yeah. So let's give a shout out. I'm looking at the opinion. Uh, I don't know these lawyers personally, but Joel Epperson out of Tampa and Ada Rodriguez also out of Tampa. They were the two lawyers who briefed and argued this and won successfully. I mean, don't get dismissed if you don't attach the medical records to your pre-suit notice. Uh, great language about chapter 76, uh, 766 uh, pre-suit not being there to sort of stick it to plaintiffs, use some common sense. And double specialty is same specialty. It's a it's a it's a, like a three great things in one opinion. It's it's definitely the big one of the month probably for plaintiffs lawyers. So that's all the cases we have to talk about for September 2022. Stay tuned for monthly updates and obviously uh, keep track of our social channels for weekly updates from Terry's Takes. We are working on putting a dedicated section on our website where we'll have this video content and also his ongoing weekly updates. So we'll notify everyone when that happens. Two quick things before we hit the outro here. One, um, we're going to put this link in the description of the video, but Terry found there's a nice write-up. It's an 11-page guide. Uh, I think it's from the Florida Bar on best practices for remote hearings and proceedings you know, in this post-COVID world. And the last part is Terry was kind enough to uh, point this out, that the rules to the Florida Evidence Code have been amended. You've probably seen this going around, but I think it's now 90.2035, which basically says courts can take judicial notice of Google Maps. This was used extensively in my career as an assistant public defender in Miami. I've seen it used in the civil context. And I never really saw too much pushback, but obviously there were some people out there pushing back and courts can now freely take judicial notice of those Google Maps without issue. And there's uh, a presumption that, I mean, if, if the other party is objecting, the new rule says that it's basically presumed that that these websites are are valid and, and they can take judicial notice. So the standing standing up to Google is not 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 the position you want to be on. If it was a Bing map, maybe I don't know, but Google's not <laughs> right. it. So look, we hope you enjoyed this. We're just working working this out. It's episode one, but we'll continue the content. If you have any feedback, feel free to send it over. And as always, wishing you all our best. If you were affected by Hurricane Ian, our firm wishes you the best and a speedy uh, recovery in all in all facets. So take care.